Thank you. Great to see all of you. Really excited to uh, start another week with you as we open the scriptures. If you're new, I want to say a special welcome to you. Thanks for coming, especially under these unusual circumstances. My name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. And it'll be my privilege to open the scriptures with you to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. If you grabbed one of those blue Bibles when you came in, we're on page 542 in those Bibles uh, as we are working our way through uh, Acts. If you're new to the Scriptures, uh, we Christians understand the Bible to be God's authoritative voice through which we continue to hear Him speaking today. So you may have noticed that we have been singing the Bible, we've been reading the Scriptures together, and He prayed in such a way that reminded us of passages, and we uh, begin each week like this, just reminding ourselves of what God says in His Word. So thanks for coming for that today. We've been working our way through a book called Acts. Acts covers roughly three decades, period of time after the resurrection of Jesus through the early several years of uh, the church. So far in the book of Acts, we've looked on as the Apostle Paul has taken the Gentile world by storm. Time after time, in passage after passage, he entered a city where there was no gospel witness at all. And upon his departure, there was a small but thriving local church planted to continually spread the light of the gospel. Church is not at all unlike us. Under the sovereign hand of God and the indwelling power of the Spirit, Paul and his teams saw large swaths of Asia, Greece, Europe come to Christ. But as we turn to the second half of Acts 21, when Paul comes into Jerusalem, things will begin to change for him dramatically. Ever on the offensive, the apostle must now take a posture of defense. In our passage today, Paul will face a Jewish mob. He'll get arrested by the Roman authorities. And so far as we know, he was never released Again, he would spend the rest of his life in prison. In fact, Acts chapters 21 all the way through the end of the book in 28 consists not of exciting missionary endeavors in new cities coupled with new church plants. Instead, they contain a very detailed record of Paul locked up. In one city alone, he spent two years awaiting trial. Over the coming weeks, as we finish out Acts by looking carefully at each chapter, Paul will be moved from prison to prison in city after city after city. He'll face a total of five trials, and in each one of these trials, he'll give an important defense of his faith. I pray that we'll be filled with courage as we see the Lord's servant over a period of years face challenging circumstances and not give up on God. And I pray we'll further develop a sense of gospel resilience as a church family, that we'd be strengthened and we wouldn't be fragile Christians. The world, you see, is not a safe place. Well, 2020 is certainly an anomaly in many ways, it has provided us here in the United States with an experience more like 
the majority of the rest of the world lives all the time. You see, that foreboding sense of constant political unrest, the economic instability, social chaos, inability to plan ahead because few things are dependable. These are constants for many people around the globe. Life in a fallen world is not a walk in the park. And we should not expect ease, nor support from the world for our faith. Being a Christian involves risk. There's a, a constant attempt to swim upstream. By outward objective standards of physical safety, vocational stability, social capital, life for the Apostle Paul was much more complicated after becoming a Christian than it was before. In fact, we could say his life was harder with Jesus than it was without. But the goal of life, brothers and sisters, is not ease. The goal of life is the glory of God. Many of the remaining chapters will give us great detail about how Paul dealt with these circumstances. And our prayer for you is that God would run a steel bar down each of our spiritual spines, helping us to stand up straight, irrespective of what difficulties may come. In C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a line about, uh, voiced by Aslan, the lion, who represents Jesus. And he says this, quote, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's a king, end quote. If our expectation is that King Jesus will be safe, always coddling our every worldly want and dispensing ease for his followers, we're going to be rather disappointed. But that Jesus doesn't exist. Instead, we have a king, a king who is not safe, but he is good. Church, our text this morning has far more verses than we can cover in depth. So as we work our way through it this morning, I want to summarize some parts and we'll closely read others. But as always, just by way of reminder, let this not be the sum of your time in this passage. We have many people in the room today and online, I'm sure you know folks as well, I encourage you to consider as I'm preaching this morning who you might meet up with this week to further read and study the passage. There's a lot here we won't be able to get to. But in summary, if I could put all the verses we'll be covering this morning into a sentence to, to capture the essence of the text, it would be this. Being witnesses for Jesus Christ requires Christians to be wise, to be vigilant, and to be ever ready. First, we must be wise. If you let your eyes glance over verses 17 to 26, if I could try to summarize for you what happens here. Paul arrived in Jerusalem, and it's hard for us to get a sense of just how momentous this moment would have been. James, the, the God-appointed leader of the mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem, is met with Paul, by Paul, Paul's the, 
God-appointed leader of the mostly Gentile churches. So Jew and Gentile. No fault of James and Paul. Those two arms of the ancient church still had tension between them. Although it's not mentioned here, Paul and his team had brought an, a generous offering from these Gentile churches to relieve the needs of Jewish Christians facing poverty in Jerusalem. James and the elders would have received that gift along with the amazing stories of God saving people all over the world. They then asked Paul to accommodate Jewish Christians who were concerned, who misunderstood Paul, accusing him of ignoring and defaming the Old Testament law. There's no reason in the text to think that Paul's willingness to comply with their requests was anything but wise. You see, church, there will be times when it's necessary to set aside freedoms in order to demonstrate people's needs come first. We will be at times asked to set aside our own sensitivities for the sensitivities of others. There will be conscience concerns Christians have that we have no need to butt up against. But rather in love and in unity, we will do what's best for them. There are many things in the Christian life that are neither right nor wrong. But if one thinks something is wrong, then it is in fact wrong if they do it. For many of us, we're very black and white, and that's difficult terrain to navigate. And yet Paul here walks that road very well. There's a place for restricting ourselves for the benefit of others. We're to never flaunt our freedoms because we might become enslaved to them if we do. Instead, we're to be flexible and wise, quick to do what's best to help others grow up in Christ. Witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ must be wise. That's what the first paragraph shows us. Now let's jump in and read the second paragraph, starting in verse 27, where we'll see that Christians are to be vigilant. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, the him is Paul, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid their hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had seen previously Trophimus, the Ephesian, who was with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribute of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. In other words, all the commotion among the Jews reached the Roman rulers. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribute and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
The little detail there when it names that there were more than one centurion means that this chaos was so big, the mob was so great, that it took at least 200 Roman soldiers to come calm it down. This is not unlike some of those riots in April, May, and June we saw here in our own country. Verse 33, when the tribute came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he'd done. Some in the crowds were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he actually carried, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. The mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! We see in this text that witnesses for Jesus must be vigilant. The Apostle Paul is our example. He lived the Christian life with an evident vigilance. Whatever the source of opposition or difficulty, he didn't allow himself to be lulled into a spiritual apathy that set him up for shock when suffering came. Instead, he was daily attentive to his own soul and thereby ready for whatever God might bring. That's not to say that the hardships weren't hard. They were. But Paul was not caught off guard by crises. There's a lot we can learn in that regard. In these verses, Paul was doing a kind thing to aid the unity of the church. That's why he was in the temple he was doing something he didn't have to do, but he wanted to do in order to love his fellow Jews well. And it's precisely in that moment of laying down his preferences that a mob seized him, made up false accusations about him, and instigated a riot. He was going out of his way to be helpful and inoffensive. Yet people in that very moment became ferocious and furious. This is yet another example in the book of Acts of the madness of crowds. Friends, you can certainly have organized, thoughtful, peaceful protest. It's one of the great freedoms that we have here. And yet, we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, not to blindly follow the masses particularly in a moment of crisis and chaos where there's just a group crowd think. A few radicals often fool the masses into supporting a cause that they don't even know the legitimacy of. And that's certainly what happened here. One person in the crowd didn't know why the other person in the crowd was there or what they were chanting for. Roman soldiers showed up to quite literally save Paul's life. Don't miss the irony there. They rescued him from the mob and then sought to uncover what was going on. But the noise from the riot was so loud they couldn't get to the bottom of this. And none of that rattled Paul. None of it sent him into a tailspin emotionally or spiritually. We don't ever see him saying, God, look at what I've done for you. Couldn't you at least have done this for me? In vigilance, he knew to expect opposition. 
Opposition not because of his demeanor, not because he was arrogant or angry or off-putting personally, but because of his gospel. Church, in vigilance, we should expect opposition from the world. I wrote down a few examples. Thanksgiving is right around the corner. Many of us will go home and sit across the table with family who are not believers. And if that awkward moment happens where you end up sharing the gospel, expect the air to be tense. Depending on the dynamics of your family, it could get downright hostile. So be vigilant. Pray now before you're at that table for compassion, for courage, for discernment, for the ability to share Christ without criticism. Ask God to prepare your own heart to remain at peace, even if you're mocked there at the table. Beloved, some of us live with non-Christians. It's not just Thanksgiving, it's all the time. Whether that person is an unbelieving roommate or an unbelieving spouse, you're very likely the person closest to that person in terms of proximity to a believer. That's a stewardship God's given you. You, of course, cannot save that other person or cause them to believe. That's not a responsibility God's placed on your shoulders. And yet He's given you an opportunity through your life and your words to share Jesus. I want to encourage you to watch for even the smallest moments to mention something again of how good God is. Doing so might bring occasion of opposition. These are examples of little microaggressions that Christians might face. But let's think for a moment on a grander scale. Brothers and sisters, there is increasing pressure from society upon people who believe the Bible that we would keep our mouths shut. Be it in a classroom, on the playground, or a cubicle, submission to Jesus Christ is not popular. The fault line of when the tension and opposition tends to come up is anything related to the LGBTQ issues. The church has not chosen this as the issue of the day, but the world has. And so if we aim to lovingly be faithful in our behavior and in our witness, then Vigilance around those matters in which we are humble and truthful and honest and confess our own sins in those regards will undoubtedly be the occasions in which we face hardship, in which we're misunderstood, in which we're uh, falsely accused of things that we don't believe. Living our Christian lives ready to speak 
on behalf of the king and equipped with the strength in the Lord to withstand that opposition is such a crucial part of living as a believer. This is a crucial part of why we need each other. Why it's so important that we start the week here together, being reminded again of who our God is and that we're not alone, even though it often feels like it. 1 Peter chapter 3, this won't be on the screens, but just hear these two verses. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. How? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet to do it with gentleness and respect. Christians, we're not called to be defensive, but we are to have a clear, truthful, loving, humble answer to the question for our hope in Christ. We are surrounded by people every day who need Jesus. Let us be vigilant as witnesses. Vigilant in such a way that we are ready to do so with gentleness and respect. Always remembering that our goal in those conversations is not merely to be right. No, by sharing the truth of the Scriptures, our goal is that people would come to know the grace and love and mercy that we have in our Lord. So thus far in this text that we're studying together this morning, we've seen Paul, by way of example, was, was wise. He had a flexibility in those matters of conscience. And he was vigilant. We also see in this text that he was ever ready to make witness for Christ. Let's read a, lo- a rather long passage, but I-, I hope it'll be an encouragement to you, starting in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? Apparently Paul said that in Greek. So the response from the Roman was, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up the revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? I wonder if Paul thought no, but that sounds pretty cool. Uh, Verse 39, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarshish in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language. Paul wasn't showing off by how many languages he knew. He understood that if you can speak to someone in their own tongue... You show deference and grace to them. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they got even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarshish of Cilicia. I was brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictest manner of the law of the fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way, that's how Christianity was described in the earliest days. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. 
as the high priest and whole council of the elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, Rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, wash your sins, call on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. I saw him saying to me, that's Jesus, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they had listened to him. When they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to figure out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they stretched him out for whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. The tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. It's so ironic that in Acts it is Paul's own countrymen who are against him and Rome who is more for him. This is truly one of those lovely passages in the Bible where put out for us to glance and gaze and enjoy from every angle is God's power 
to transform people. In this context of being labeled as anti-Jewish, anti-law, anti-gospel, the Apostle Paul was eager, he was ready to speak about Christ. His aim was not to win the praises of the crowd. That simply was not going to happen. But he did long for some there to come to know his Lord. In custody and en route to appear before the Roman authorities, Paul asked to speak to them. He had no time to prepare. This was impromptu. No notes. No teleprompter. Yet he was ready. Beloved, it is impossible to predict what opportunities the Lord will bring you in the next 24 hours, let alone the next week or month or year. There's simply no way to know. And so we must be people who prepare today. We must be people whose habit is to be prepared every day. How? Read the Scriptures every day. Live in such a way that you have an ongoing, in and out conversation with God in prayer. Confess your sins every time they come to mind. Keep the glories of your salvation close. Don't put your walk with Christ or your church community on the back burner. Keep it right up at the front so it stays hot. Make a habit of saying yes to every little opportunity God gives. Most of the opportunities we have are littles, but every now and then a big one will come along. Read good books, have deep relationships with other Christians. Make your life ultimately about Christ. That's how we'll be ever ready for whatever the Lord brings. I hope you'll study this passage carefully in the next few days. But notice the different movements. There's three of them in this story. There's Paul as he was before Christ. Then there's Paul with Christ. And finally, there's Paul on behalf of Christ. Paul before Christ, Paul with Christ, Paul on behalf of Christ. If you've never taken the time, Christian, to think through how to articulate your own testimony of what God's done in your life, that's a great way to do it. First, let's think about Paul before Christ. Even before he was saved, he was a religious man. He believed that the way to right standing with God was to obey what we today would call the Old Testament. It was to follow all the rules some of us have personalities like that. We think if we just do the right things, God will be impressed. Paul based his whole life around strict adherence to the law. But make no mistake, religion without reliance on God does not lead to a right relationship with Him. Works righteousness is no righteousness at all. But Paul didn't see this. He was, he was blinded to his need for grace, ignorant of the God he thought he knew, so much so that he missed the most explicit 
self-revelation God ever gave, namely Jesus Christ. Instead of coming to know God and enjoying Jesus, Paul was convinced that anyone who followed Jesus deserved to die. He violently persecuted the earliest Christians. This man was literally a murderer. He hated Christ. He despised Christians. So he's the least likely person on the planet to become one. There's nothing quite like self-righteousness to deceive. But make no mistake, no one is beyond the power and grace of God to save. Jesus is a sufficient Savior for all. Paul before Christ was a wreck. But then notice in his own testimony, his life with Christ. Every Christian's story of coming to know Jesus is personal and distinct. God comes to us individually. He sets his loving affections on us in an intimate and particular manner. When you stop to think about that, isn't it amazing? God loves us individually. He knows everything about everyone. And yet he pursues personally. That's overwhelming. What a great God he is. Friends, think about the people you are closest to. The, the, the connection that makes us so tight, whether that's friends, family, church, is that we feel known. God knows. He knows everything. And he pursues individually. In Paul's case, Paul became a Christian through a very dramatic encounter with the risen Lord. Again, the particular circumstances surrounding everyone's conversion to Christ will vary wildly. There is no need to look at Paul's story and say, mine's not as good because it's not as dramatic. In Paul's case, he was temporarily blinded physically in order that he could come to terms with the fact that he was spiritually blind. God used that encounter with Jesus and later with Ananias to bring the gospel to bear on his life and to heal his spiritual blindness so that he could see. The end result of all this is that this first great persecutor of the church became the chief proponent of the Prince of Peace. So that's Paul before Christ. And in a way, we can say, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you say, now I'm with Christ. That's what Paul's describing there. But finally, consider with me what may be the most scandalous thing in this passage. It's Paul on behalf of Christ. In his particular circumstance, Paul's conversion to Christianity and his call to be an apostle coincide. He had a unique calling from God to burst the doors into the ancient world open as the gospel went out of Jerusalem into the Gentile world 
And he had the authority to preach and write as one who had seen the risen Lord. That won't be the exact call any of us have because there are no more apostles today. There's no need for them. And yet, each and every follower of Jesus is a witness for Jesus nonetheless. I know you've been listening a while, but let that sink in. Beloved, whenever we encourage each other as brothers and sisters in Christ with the truth of the gospel and we speak Jesus' words to each other, or when we share Christ with those who don't yet know him, in both cases, as we speak the gospel to others, we are speaking on behalf of the King of kings and Lord of lords. God is speaking through us. To do discipleship and evangelism is just that. It is to speak for God. If God can take the mouth of the one who is seeking to put Christianity to an end and make him a great preacher of the gospel, what is God doing with you? Paul was ever ready for the opportunity set before him. Ultimately, you see, as, as interesting though as Paul's experience is, in the life of Paul, we simply have a window through which to see Jesus more clearly. Paul suffered imprisonment and mockery, but Jesus far more. Jesus' imprisonment and his mockery were far greater because they ultimately led to Jesus' death on a cross. There, as Jesus hung, he took every last drop of God's wrath against sinners. And as the perfect sacrifice, he is able now to give life and hope and peace and joy and right standing with God to all who would turn from sin and trust in him. Friend, if you are still in the position of being before Christ, today you can become one with Christ. You can turn from sin and trust in Him. He has shown Himself to you today in His Word. This is how He speaks. There is forgiveness. While the gospel does not offer you safety in this life, it does guarantee you safety and security and eternal hope in the next. Far from being unimportant, that is the most important thing. In this great speech of Paul, this impromptu testimony, we see a great rubric through which we can see our own lives. Brothers and sisters, remind yourself today of who you used to be, of who you now are because of Jesus. And then I pray that as we leave in a moment, we will have a a greater awareness of the fact that in each situation the Lord puts us in in the coming week, we are there to speak on behalf of Christ. This is how God works today in the world, through you. 
Many days it does not feel like it. There's laundry and traffic lights, grocery lines, grumpy coworkers, teachers to appease. But in each and every case, the Lord is with you and he is there for you that you might speak for him. I'm thankful today that in the kindness of God and in his providence, we were able in the last gathering to see a baptism. A baptism in which there was not just Paul's testimony, which we've learned about today, there was also Angelica's. As she just a few minutes ago stood in the waters, she read her story and in her weeping, Christ was made clear. Although you weren't able to see that baptism personally, we'd love for you to hear her story, her testimony, and that it would be an encouragement to you that not only was God working back then in Paul's day, he's still working today. Randy Hagler, one of our pastors who baptized her in the last hour, is going to come for us and read you what Angelica wrote in her own words. I hope and pray that that will bless you as you consider what God might do in you and through you. Brother? Thanks.